Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who's grateful to have a front seat at the edge of technology and being able to share with you all of the exciting things that are happening inside biotech. We also do a lot of speaking about biotechs-associated products. And today we'll talk a lot about glyphosate with an expert team who knows a lot about the compound. Now, one of the first exciting plant biotech innovations was granting plants resistant to the herbicide glyphosate. Farming depends on the ability to control weeds. I mean, after all, we're putting plants where they don't belong. We're putting crops in the space of native plants, and it's difficult for crops to compete against them for resources like water, fertilizer, whatever. So farmers are in this endless battle against weeds, using cultivation, chemistry, manual labor, whatever you can do to control them. Now, one particularly useful herbicide is glyphosate. It's the active ingredient in the herbicide, commercial herbicide Roundup. Now, scientists knew about this for some time. It's a broad-spectrum herbicide. Kills everything it touches, right, in terms of plants. Yet, has a remarkable safety record with non-plants. Kills weeds fine. But it also would kill the crop. So, scientists use innovative technologies to create crop plants that would live through the glyphosate treatment. And these became known as Roundup Ready Crops. And soon, in the, starting in the 1990s, corn, cotton, soybeans, canola, sugar beets, they were all created with this Roundup Ready trait. It allowed farmers to plant the crop, let it grow for a little bit, and then spray everything with a Roundup, killing the weeds but leaving the crop behind. And it worked well for years. Yet today it's clear there's many species of weeds that are developing resistance to that herbicide, and that's no surprise. Um, New strategies are being developed. We'll talk about that story another day. But weed resistance is not the central fit problem facing glyphosate. It's public resistance. You see, anyone that's surfed the internet or turned on a television in the last three years has been bombarded with claims that glyphosate causes cancer, a claim never made by any scientific or regulatory body, not one. In fact, only one assessment in hundreds referred to it as a probable carcinogen based upon certain data and a highly debatable conclusion that really was counter to the best studies that were out there. But in the endless war against chemistry and corporate seeds, activists were quick to jump on that tenuous association. And over the next years, reports of glyphosate being detected everywhere, from rain to crackers to beer to human hair, were emerging in questionable social media memes to legitimate surveys by the U.S. Geological Service. So what's the truth? How much is really there on agricultural commodities, on processed products, 
Uh, um, are the detection methods reliable? Most of all, are the levels detected safe to consume? There are so many reports from so many questionable groups. There's good reports in the peer-reviewed literature. There's um, reports that appear to be legitimate in what could be construed as predatory literature. So for years, I hoped that someone would sort all this out in some sort of comprehensive and clear way. And someone did. A recent review in the journal Comprehensive Reviews in Food Science and Food Safety was published from a team from Bayer. Bayer Corporation. It's one, they're still one of dozens of corporations that manufactures glyphosate. We'll be speaking with Dr. John Vicini. He's uh, in regulatory services. Dr. John Swarthout, scientific outreach and issues management. Dr. Pam Jensen, who's a senior research scientist, and Bruce Young, who works in issues management. These four experts will help us sort out what is the detection process. Um, which ones are reliable? What are their limitations? What are their strengths? And what are the numbers that are really being identified? And are those really a risk? They're the experts in the area, so I'm very grateful to have them on. So the first question really is, is what is glyphosate? And how is it being used to control weed pests? So Kevin, glyphosate is a um, analog of the molecule glycine. So it's actually a fairly simple molecule that was discovered in the mid seventies. Um, and what it does is it, if it inhibits an enzyme in plants called EPSPS, um, and that's an enzyme involved in uh, synthesis of aromatic amino acids and also in lignin. So you can see these are really important components to a plant. So when they can't make them, they die. Um, and, and so it's a broad spectrum herbicide for that reason. Um, and what's really good about it is, is that humans in their cells, they don't make that enzyme. Um, and, and in fact, the fact that they don't make that enzyme is why aromatic amino acids are essential amino acids in our diet. So it really has no impact on that pathway in humans and other animals. Um, and, and where, as you mentioned, it's involved in biotechnology, uh, where that comes about is the fact that the um, Roundup Ready gene um, is a gene that was found in nature that when it was inserted into um, specific types of plants, it prevents glyphosate from acting on those plants. And so it, it results in those plants. You can spray, kill the weeds around the plants, but not impact um, those other crops. And, and farmers have quickly adopted this when it came along because it really made their lives easier um, and, and actually made them more income. Well, most of us have uh, followed this glyphosate story for a long time. I know I've, I've followed it from the beginning. But over the last 10 years or so, it's been really challenging to watch because there's so many claims that are being made. And critics claim that this stuff is everywhere. It's present in food at dangerous levels. And anyone who reads the literature or knows how it's used on a farm knows that there really is minimal exposure to the active ingredient. So recently you had a published review, which was a great review of the literature as it, rely, as it relates to dietary exposure and potential risk. And so why was it necessary to really synthesize the literature on this particular subject? Well, what you just said kind of describes why. Um, we follow the literature very closely. <clears throat> um, and in following that literature, we um, are looking for what are the studies people are doing with our products um, and what 
one that came to our attention several years ago was the paper about glyphosate being in, in human breast milk. And, and we didn't believe that result. And, and so we actually um, put together a team of people to uh, do a follow-up study on that and found out that when you use a proper assay, and we'll talk a lot about assays today, I'm sure, um, that, that glyphosate is not detectable in milk, whether it be human milk or cow's milk. Um, but you see lots of reports about, about glyphosate, and a lot of it comes in popular press. And so this article was kind of a, a rare article in that we reference lots of popular press, which is normally not in these types of papers. But the public is seeing that information, and so we thought it was important um, to kind of explain to the readers um, why they see that information and to just to hear that something was detected doesn't really tell you anything. And so how to really judge those kinds of information. Um, and then also another thing that this paper is uh, going to do is it will go into our renewal.ca.gov. Um, it's not a requirement of those types of dossiers, but it's something where we wanted to include that in to address you know, what, what society reads. Okay, that's really a good thing because I've said over the years that someone needs to synthesize this information. And as I think I mentioned in the email to invite you to the podcast that it saves me the trouble of doing it because it really needed to be done. Um, but one question that will, people will always ask is, you know, the authors are from the company that makes the product. So you can see how they'll automatically be skeptical. I mean, you see the claims, right, when, when that happens. So who is your intended audience with this particular review? Well, I think our intended audience is really um, just about anybody. It's consumers. It's people in the healthcare profession because we think that you know doctors, dietitians, um, they need to be able to help explain answers to these types of questions because when people have these questions, they're not contacting us. They're they're talking to their healthcare providers, um, and and so they need to have access to this kind of information. And and you know we really get that not having. Um, you know, that having just bare authors um, probably doesn't help with credibility, but we had a long discussion about it. And we thought that, you know, one of the great things for me working in bears, I work around a lot of experts in a lot of areas. And so the three people here were all experts in the different areas that we um, put into this paper. Um, and I'm not sure that if we had added a university or other type of researcher, um, it really would help the credibility of the paper. It, and, and so we obviously, you know, were involved in the writing. So they might then, um, it might not help their credibility. So we decided to go it alone. And I think that's really a good point. And I, I really want to reinforce this for a couple of reasons. One is that for the credibility of the work itself, but also for people communicating this to others, is that when you want to know about the chemistry and the risk involved in a given product, the people who are with the company responsible for making it are the experts you want to talk to because they're the ones who have done all of this analysis in the most critical way. And so this is why you want them on the team when you're doing this kind of work. So just to reinforce that point. Um, but let me ask about... Let me add one more thing real quick, and that is that um, there's no original data in this paper. It is a it is a review, and all of the references are there. So if anybody is skeptical about you know our conclusions on anything, um, they can go to those references and and judge them for themselves. 
Um, one of the other things we did is we specifically went looking for a high impact factor journal, but also one that allowed a lot of words. Um, <laughs> and so this is a journal that um, allows comprehensive reviews. In fact, it's called the Comprehensive Reviews in Food Science and Food Safety. And um, and then, you know, we obviously, you know, sought out a journal that did a rigorous peer review. And there will be a link to this article inside the show notes. So those of you who are interested in checking out the original article. Now, we're seeing a lot of reports. If you just look online anywhere, you find all these claims about the presence of glyphosate in food. And are these peer-reviewed reports for the most part? Or how, and really the most important question is, can we trust the numbers that we see? Yeah, I'll take that one, Kevin. So uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, so so those articles run the whole gamut from uh, peer-reviewed to non-peer-reviewed, and they come from a variety of sources. So all you have to do is just do a quick search of Google, and you'll see reports coming from mainstream media and secondary media sources, as well as scientific articles, um, reports from regulatory authorities, and even uh, NGOs. Um, but I think the real takeaway from the question that you're asking is not so much whether it's peer-reviewed or not peer-reviewed, but the real takeaway is um, the type of assay that they're using, the values that they're reporting, and whether or not the values that they're detecting um, are being reported in the proper context. So what I mean by that is specifically what does that reported value mean in terms of dietary exposure and safety? And I can say conclusively, um, based on uh, all the evidence that we provided in the paper, that is when you analyze these reports in details, you come to the conclusion that uh, acute dietary exposure to glyphosate does not represent a safety concern. Oh, very good. And, and we'll get to that in a minute with respect to uh, the assays involved and whether or not the assays are reliable because it covers a gamut. And I think some are really great and other ones are just, you can't, are just completely invalid. But maybe that's really the next point here to uh, to discuss is that when you look at the data, and you know, John touched on this a little bit before, um, where do the data come from that are present in this review, from uh, from the entire scope of reports, even if they're not peer-reviewed? Thanks, Kevin. Um, I can answer that question. So our review summarizes residue monitoring data from various regulatory agencies in Europe, United States, and Canada. You can see that in tables two, three, and four. Um, these studies are often referred to as market basket studies because the samples are purchased just like a consumer would at the grocery store. Um, the goal of these studies is to ensure to the public that farmers are following the approved label instructions and that residues are not at unexpectedly high amounts. Um, the monitoring reports are conducted yearly they're based on a statistically representative sample size, um, validated assays capable of measuring multiple pesticide residues, and they have complete transparency of sample analysis. No, that's good. And I, I think that the big problem is, is that we see from the consumer side is that, and I, you know, I know from doing some analytical chemistry, is that we're very good at detecting almost nothing, you know, parts per trillion, parts per billion. And to me, that means something. But how, how realistic is the consumer expectation of finding zero glyphosate in something? I think that's a really good point as, you know, technology improves. This is just going to uh, happen more often. 
where we're going to be able to detect things at lower and lower uh, levels. And so it's entirely possible we're going to continue to detect pesticides or endogenous toxins for that matter where we didn't before. And so I think it's, it's framing it in the zero reasonable. Um, you know, if I, if I came into your kitchen with a super high powered magnifying glass and found one speck of dirt, would you call your whole kitchen dirty and not eat anything from it, you know, ever again? Um, no, you know, because zero doesn't mean uh, safe in that sense if you did find something. And so it's kind of realigning people's expectations. Uh, what we really want to know is, is that things are safe. Uh, and these assays, as they get lower and lower, you know, the important part is to understand what really is a detect and what is a safe level. Yeah, that, that's really a good point because the, the consumer's expectation is, is zero. And I don't know that we're ever going to get to zero. And when you look hard enough, you find something because we're so good at the detection. When you say it's detected, what does that tell us versus something not detected? Well, yeah, that's, that's also a really great question because, um, you know, not detected uh, means it was below the capabilities of our assay. And so you have to know what those capabilities are. So it's really important that the assay you use has been defined what that limit of detection is and what that limit of quantitation is. Otherwise you can't really define what does it mean to be not detected. And this is often the step that's missed in some of these assays. So you really don't know how to interpret those, you know, values. And, and Kevin, one, one more thing, and that is when you look at some of these popular press articles, what was really interesting is um, invariably the headline sort of implies that nobody was aware this was there, that this is some novel finding and, and we should all be surprised. And, and the fact is uh, nobody was really surprised. Um, and, and so, you know, we, again, we felt like we needed to put some of these types of papers into the, um, into the review and then, you know, look at what they did, but then also not make a judgment about whether their number was correct or wrong, but to use their number in the calculations that we did. And so um, we, um, you know, took those articles very seriously. That's a really good point. And I, and I appreciate that. But, you know, let's go back one step just to help the people who are listening. You mentioned, um, Pam, you mentioned limit of quantitation and limit of detection. And what did those two things mean? Yeah, so limit of detection uh, is the concentration at which you can reliably say that that analyte, so in this case glyphosate, is there. This is with like a 99% certainty that every time you analyze that sample, you would be able to detect glyphosate. That's your limit of detection, that concentration. That's what the assay could do in that matrix. And they're very matrix specific. So you can't apply an LOD for say an assay in general and say that's the limit in everything that you might use that assay for. It's not the same in milk as it is in oats. Um, so that's another critical part that needs to be considered. Limit of quantitation is the value at which you can reliably get a quantitative value with a high degree of precision. 
Yeah. So the detect so the limit of detection is the level where you can say yes or no, it's there. Yeah. The other one is how much is there. So those are two really important things that you need to figure out with your assay for a given matrix. So the when you say matrix, you mean the stuff that it's in, whether it's milk or oats or water or urine, whatever. Exactly. That, um, and so the in the LODs and the LOQs vary for each of those. Yeah. So that so just all right, I just want to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page because these are so critical when you start to analyze the literature and determine whether or not it's reliable. So the other thing that comes up are the concepts of MRL and ADI. So what what is an MRL and an ADI and, and how are those numbers determined for something like glyphosate? So Kevin the um one thing that really these are confusing um, terms to people, and part of the reason they're confusing, I think, is because in the EU, we tend to use MRL and ADI. In the U.S., we tend to use tolerances and RFD, but they're essentially the same thing. And so um, we pretty well, in the review, focus on MRL and ADI, and the reason we did that is because the ADI for glyphosate is actually lower um, than it is in the U.S. And so we use the more conservative standard. Um, but basically what an MRL is, is it's the maximum residue limit um, and it's derived from regulatory studies. And so, um, you know, people actually do studies that are looking at um, what the proposed label type of application is going to be and measure what the values are. And, and so that's a really important thing to understand because it's not saying it's safe. The first step is to determine what those levels are. Um, and, and, and that's why, as we talked about assays, they're so important because you want to be able to trust your numbers. Um, and, and so if you hear that an MRL was measured and it's uh, greater than the number, it doesn't tell you that crop is unsafe um, because you really don't understand safety until you look at the ADI. And the ADI is a um, health-based variable that really is derived from animal studies. And so it's looking at what the impact of glyphosate is at different doses on animals. And it's really looking for what's the highest dose that was given that had no impact. And, and so that then becomes the basis of the ADI. Some uncertainty factors are put in there just to be a little more conservative. And, and then if you add up all of the intakes that you get, then you want to be less than the ADI. And that tells you that um, you can consume that amount every day for the rest of your life. And, and it will be a, a reasonable certainty of no harm. Um, so you can tell when you look at all those numbers, the MRLs, you could double the MRLs. And if you look at our data, you can see that the the percent of the ADI is incredibly low. And so if you were to double those numbers, it doesn't mean it's unsafe. It just means that it's a higher number, but it's still in that safe range. Um, and, and so you really need to look at the combination of MRL and ADI to make, um, make assessments, which are a mathematical process called risk assessment to understand what the impact is on, on, um, adults and children. So when you go through the review and you look at all the different numbers that have been reported, even the stuff that's not peer reviewed, like just the websites, how many of these values have even approached the ADI? Yeah. So 
again, and I just want to make sure that I don't confuse anyone, um, looking at one single food item and saying whether to purchase the ADI um, is is not really relevant. The, the thing that's relevant is going to be what is your total exposure? So you don't just eat one food item. And, and so, you know, often you'll hear people say, you know, you can drink so many bottles of beer before you get the exposure, but you have to also look at that in terms of a total diet. And, and so when, what we did is we used two ways to look at total diet. One way is the data modeling that has been done that makes assumptions about, you know, what do people eat and, um, what are the, what are the, um, what are the, what are the amounts that are actually measured for residues in, in food items? And then we also look at urine, which is sort of making an assumption that all the glyphosate that goes in comes out and what is the back calculation to determine how much a person was actually exposed to, regardless of what they ate. And both of those things we were amazed to see how well they agree. Um, they agree very well, and they, they both show that total glyphosate intake on average is probably less than about 3% of what you can consume. Okay, that, that helps a lot. I mean, how reliable are those urine tests, and how do they relate? Is it, is it really one-to-one for in versus out? Well, it's not exactly one-to-one because um, what happens with, let's say, when it when you get it into into your food is is that eighty percent of it goes right through you and and comes out in feces. Twenty percent um, gets absorbed, and when that twenty percent gets absorbed, it's very rapidly excreted because it's not metabolized by the body, and so the function of the kidneys is to you know, filter and recapture things, and it doesn't recapture the glyphosate, it just goes out in urine. Um, and, and so it, you can use it in a way as a biomarker of glyphosate itself to determine what the total consumption was. So, so the reliability really depends on, again, assays. Like we hate to keep bringing up assays, but when you look at these data and all these different studies, the, 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 you know, whether the numbers are accurate or can be perceived as accurate is very critical. And then, and, and, you know, and from a safety standpoint, um, if you had something that you're claiming had some risk, the place you'd want to find it is in the urine and excreta of the body because it means it's not having a biological impact. It's moving right through, right? I mean, that that's true too, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's it's actually not a bad place to have it. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that um, because there's no metabolism, there's and because it's rapidly excreted, there's there's no bioaccumulation, and 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 not only is there no bioaccumulation of the glyphosate itself, there's no bioaccumulation of metabolites. I'm glad you brought that up because one, one other question, I think I've seen reports in the past, I know I've seen reports where they claim that there is a some finite percentage of the stuff that's turned over in the liver by a cytochrome P450. Is that still true from what we know nowadays? Um, no, because I think that, you know, that would imply that there's some, you know, metabolism of it. And, and when you give large amounts um two animals, even IV, so it doesn't have to go be absorbed into the body. Um, most of that is all, um, um, you know, recovered. 
Very good. I'm glad I asked because I've, I've still been saying that wrong based on something I read a long time ago, I guess. Um, but let's talk about detection. Um, you know, Pam, maybe this goes to you. I, I know that I've reported on this podcast quite a bit about the veracity of the competitive ELISA as a method to quantify glyphosate. And what is this particular test? And what are the problems with precise quantification? Um, isn't say like a, a complex matrix like milk or wine or food? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. That's that's a really great question because it really is critical to understand how this assay works in order to understand why it can be so unreliable. So first, just in case you know your audience doesn't know, the ELISA assay it stands for enzyme-linked immunoabsorbent assay, which basically means it's an antibody-based assay. And this particular type is is a competitive assay, which means that it uses a special enzyme-linked glyphosate reagent that comes in the kit to compete with glyphosate from the sample for binding sites on that glyphosate antibody. And the linked enzyme that's on there can convert a substrate into a colored product, which is then measured by its UV absorbance. So that, in a nutshell, is how the assay itself works. So ideally, if there is no glyphosate in your sample, all of the antibody sites get bound by that enzyme-linked glyphosate and the absorbance signal that you measure would be at its maximum. So theoretically, any decrease in absorbance signal would indicate there was presence of glyphosate in the sample. But this is where like the biggest problem lies. If anything else interferes with the binding of that enzyme-linked glyphosate, uh, it too, will decrease the absorbance signal and then could be misinterpreted as a presence of glyphosate. So with complex samples like food or milk, you can't rule out that there's interference from the multiple different sample components that would be present. Things such as phosphate, carbonate ions, salts, or even just high acidity have been shown in the past by other researchers to affect the assay. Well, and this is really important because some of these uh, compounds that have been claimed to have been detected, like wine, I think is a good example. Were these done with that competitive ELISA kit? Yes, yes. All, most of those uh, beer and wine, um, cereals, uh, several urine um, reports all use this ELISA assay. And a key component of this is they didn't validate for those matrices. So the kit comes with the intention to be used for water. The standard curve that's used to calibrate that absorbance response uses standards that are in pure water, which of course doesn't have these types of interferences that you would see in complex samples. So the absorbance signal that you would measure in say glyphosate-free milk will not be the same that you would measure in glyphosate-free water. So the two can't be compared. And typically the detection limits that these articles report, they're based on the standards in water and then simply multiply by any dilution factor that the sample may have undergone. And then they call that the detection limit. It's not empirically or experimentally uh, derived and it doesn't do it in the sample matrix that they're analyzing. So those values that they get really can't be interpreted. 
and maybe I'll just try to clarify it this way, that by saying if you had wine or milk and you ran it through the most rigorous test that we'll talk about in a second and showed it was completely clear of glyphosate or it came from outer space where there was no glyphosate and you ran that through this competitive ELISA, you still likely would receive some signal suggesting detection, even though there's absolutely none there. You could, you could. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it depends on the matrix, you know, but these complex matrices have a lot of compounds in them that could interfere with that binding. And so just because you see a signal doesn't mean it came from glyphosate unless you have it properly controlled and validated to show that in this matrix, you can get a reliable result. Well, there were these reports that said that there was glyphosate detected in beer and wine. So am I correct in saying that there really isn't or how, how would I best interpret these results? So, so I think that, that to make the statement that there's um, no glyphosate in beer or wine um, would, would not be accurate in that it's possible it could be there. There's corn that's used to, to ferment wines. Um, excuse me, to ferment beer. Um, grapes obviously are not sprayed with glyphosate, but they do spray around around grapes. Um, and, and so there could be glyphosate that gets there by drift. And so one of the things farmers are doing a better job of is they're using like hooded sprayers to try to limit where um, any, any um, you know, wind-carried um, pesticides would go. Um, so it's, it's pretty hard to make a blanket statement because the assay isn't correct or isn't validated that, that it's not there. Um, it would have to be looked at with an appropriate assay. That's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't mean to make the uh, claim that it wasn't there. But what about things like organic wine? Because they claim to have detected it there, and they shouldn't be using glyphosate and row middles on organic grapes, but they're still detecting it. Is there a way to reconcile how those numbers, you know, may be there or not there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that points to the case that there could be interferences from the assay. Um, you know, this can happen in, in any technique. LCMSMS, which is liquid chromatography with tandem mass spectrometry, is really considered the gold standard. But you know, I think it's important to point out that any detection method can be used poorly, whether it's the ELISA or mass spec based methods. Um, so to understand these claims, it's really critical to understand if the method was demonstrated to be fit for the, that purpose and validating an assay for its intended use. That's how we determine that. And that's most important. And so you know, if you have a detect in organic, you know, I would look back on my assay and say, is there someplace something could have been contaminated? Do I have a background interference? Um, you know, what could be that cause? One advantage of, of tandem mass spectrometry is that it's so specific that the likelihood of that interference causing an issue is less. That's why it's considered a gold standard. Whereas in ELISA, you really have no other, you know, uh, method to rule out false positives and interferences from the matrix. So you would want to take those potential samples that seemed odd and confirm them with another technique and see if you got the same answer. 
No, very good. And I guess the other part of this that maybe the average listener doesn't appreciate is that it's in the detection, but also in your sample preparation and that your sample preparation, derivatization, all the other things that have to be done, well, that may be done to a sample ahead of time in order to detect a given molecule, that those processes can have an effect on the detection and have to be validated too. Is that correct? That's very correct, yes. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of factors that can affect this. And so you have to validate your preparation as well as your detection method. And that isn't always done in some of these more rapid assays. Um, I guess the uh, when reading the the paper, the confusing thing on me was table one, and you talk about um, refer to like low, medium, and high for accurate. So for accuracy, high is a good thing, high accuracy, but for LOD, LOQ, high is unfavorable because it means that you have to have a lot there before you could detect it correctly. Am I interpreting this correctly, or just to, just to clarify that figure for the listener? Yeah, yeah, you're you're definitely interpreting that correctly. Um, it, it was hard to find a way to make both high and low, you know, come out um, equivalent, you know. Uh, so the table was meant to try to give a comparison of the techniques to each other, and so high, yeah, doesn't always mean good. So a high LOQ just means the value is higher. So if you're trying to detect low residues, you would want a low LOQ. That would be better and more favorable. So, um, yeah. No, very good. I, I want to clarify that just because our I'm, I'm hoping that everybody goes and reads the paper, and I want everyone to be conversant in this thing because it's really an important one. Um, we're going to take a break here. We're talking with Dr. John Vassini, Dr. Pamela Jensen, uh, Dr. John Swarthout, and Bruce Young here on the Talking Biotech podcast about a recent review in exposure of glyphosate through the diet and what it means and what are the relative risks. This is a Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin. And a lot of people ask how they can help the Talking Biotech podcast. The best thing you can do? Help spread the word. There's simple steps to increase listenership. Now, remember, my goal is simple. It's to provide good information from the experts that can help others navigate the extensive misinformation and disinformation that permeates social media and sometimes traditional media. So what can you do? Write reviews wherever you consume podcast media. Good reviews, and lots of them, influence the decision to listen or subscribe to a given podcast. Share the weekly podcast on your social media streams, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. It makes a huge difference when you like or retweet some of the work we do. Or support the podcast with a donation on Patreon. There have been a lot of low-dollar donors lately, and that's huge. They add up really fast. Think of a donation to put science into the ears of more listeners, because every cent goes into boosting posts in social media and advertising in those spaces. It's in an attempt to cast a wider net and find new listeners. I can't tell you how many people say, I can't believe I just found this, and now I have 100, well, 300 episodes to go through. So whatever you do, your efforts are very much appreciated. My interests are simply to produce exceptional media with compelling guests and fortify your ability to engage in social media and around the dinner table. 
I want to provide you with the content and the communication strategies to combat false information, as well as share the beautiful stories of science and technology. Plus, the guests are super interesting too. So as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate it. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with a team from Bayer Crop Sciences about glyphosate in a recent review that they prepared where they summarized the current literature relative to dietary exposure. And if any of you have done a walk around the internet, you realize it's a complete uh, morass with respect to the methods used and what the claims are made and whether or not it's risky. This article puts it all in one place and gives you very good perspective at helping to interpret the numbers. So I hope you check that out. But in the meantime, we'll continue to speak with the, the, the team from, from Bayer. Um, when you look at the raw commodities that are presented in table two, uh, the numbers are from Europe where they really don't have much for genetically engineered crops, with the exception of maize, which is grown in some countries. Um, but um, none of these crops that are GE crops are coming from EU. Why is glyphosate being detected on things where they're not using GE crops? That's a great question, um, Kevin. Glyphosate, you're correct that glyphosate is not allowed in, um, is not used in Europe in genetically engineered crops, but glyphosate is still registered in the EU as a plant protection product where it's used primarily to prevent soil loss by reducing tillage and reducing the manual work in the field. Um, another reason that there might be detects is that the residue monitoring program also includes not only domestic commodities, but commodities imported from other regions where glyphosate may be registered for use in a GE crop. And maybe since we're on the subject of Europe, you know, a recent report had done an assessment of glyphosate use in Europe, um, or the it was the assessment for the glyphosate uh, in Europe, which is really a predecessor to their reapproval or the re-registration in 2022. And can you give us a quick summary of what that report found? Um, yeah, Kevin. So the um, the report is called the Renewal Assessment Report, and when when you go through a reapproval in the EU, um, certain countries. Um, are in charge of doing the reassessment report or the RAR. And so for this one, it was France, Netherlands, Hungary, and Sweden. And so they issued their report and the report was essentially, you know, all positive, um, basically saying that, you know, their assessment of the literature um, for the, you know, the past few years um, shows that glyphosate is approvable. Um, they come to the conclusion that it's not a carcinogen, not a mutagen, not a reproductive toxin. Um, so what, what all the regulatory agencies have been saying over the years. Um, and so now that has a lot longer ways to go before we actually get to um, the renewal of glyphosate in the EU. But um, so far, it's looking good. Is there any thought that the IARC may reevaluate glyphosate? Yeah, I don't think they ever will. Um, I, it just seems like they have no intention to do that. Um, they obviously are the, um, you know, the, the biggest issue out there as far as, 
you know, making a statement about the fact that, you know, glyphosate is a carcinogen. Um, we think that they obviously just looked at a small quantity of literature and did not look at the, um, the volume of literature that's out there. Um, and, and so when regulatory agencies are looking at these things, um, they are looking at everything they can, can look at where IARC just picks selected things. Um, and, and so even since IARC made that rolling, as I said, the, the RAR just came to the conclusion that disagrees with IARC. EPA has disagreed with it. In fact, EPA has even said that if anybody wanted to put on a label um, that glyphosate may be a carcinogen, they would not be allowed to do that because that would be false advertising. Um, that glyphosate is not a carcinogen. So the, you know, all of the regulatory, um, you know, um, authorities have basically, you know, come to that same conclusion with IARC being the lone exception. No, oh, very good. Back to Europe in table two, you know, you're seeing these levels show up or detections in certain crops, again, not GE crops, but are those levels, um, where are they relative to the tolerance levels for the EU and are levels in the USA um, that we're finding on raw commodities uh, anywhere near the tolerance levels? Yeah, so essentially, you know, what you see throughout is that the levels are less than the tolerance and they should be because the tolerance, again, is not really saying anything about safety. What it's really saying is that farmers are following the label um, and that if there was a value that was higher, that um, doesn't necessarily imply safety. However, the other thing about the tolerances is that in commodities, um, they're done on the raw commodity, but in market basket surveys where they look at sometimes processed foods, Glyphosate is highly water soluble, so any processing that involves water usually results in a, a lesser amount of glyphosate than was there on the commodity. Um, sugar beets is interesting because you know sugar beets are um, genetically modified. Um, sugar is crystallized from those beets, and that crystallization results in there being no glyphosate detectable in in sugar. So um, there's really no surprises in the um, tolerance in the um, residue amounts that have been detected so far. And it's a really good point. So when you're talking about sugar beets, maybe high fructose corn syrup, so it's the ingredients that come from a genetically engineered plant that would be thought where these where glyphosate would be if it was anywhere. But the processes that take it from a plant which is sprayed early in its development with a very small amount of chemical. Um, you know, we're talking about 750 grams per acre, maybe, you know, maybe double that in some cases, but very small amount of active ingredient early in a plant's development. And then weeks, months later, harvesting something from that plant, processing it, and then looking for the detection of glyphosate. And so when we're, and that's just what I wanted to frame for the audience is that you're looking to detect something that was sprayed a long time before in a small amount. No, no surprise. You can't detect it in the final products. But what about things like meat, milk and eggs where the animals are consuming GE crops at a much higher level in their raw commodity form? Yeah, so animals are a lot like people. Um, so for starters, I'm, I am an animal scientist, and that's why I said I originally got um, involved in looking at this back with the, um, the milk study. Um, and, and so essentially, you know, when animals are consuming crops that, you know, may have some residue on them, 
um, first of all, regulatory authorities are looking for, you know, is the food from that, those animals safe also. But the other thing is that, you know, it's not, it's not bioaccumulating in those animals. And, and so it's, it's being excreted uh, just like it would be from a human. Um, and, and it's highly water soluble. So it really doesn't get into those other tissues. Well, the big explosion online was around things like Cheerios. And we talked previously about beer and wine. Um, but, you know, what about breakfast cereals? Are, where do those claims start and how are they measuring it? You know, and are those reliable? Yeah, Kevin, um, most of these reports were also you know done by NGOs using the ELISA assay. Um, so I think we've you know kind of discussed how that assay isn't always reliable, especially if it hasn't been validated for for those matrices, for those food items. Uh, and there's no indication in any of the reports that the assay was ever validated appropriately. So I would say that, you know, we have to take those results um, with a little bit of, you know, skepticism and, and, you know, not trust them completely. But I think it's important to note, too, that if you if you look at the values that they do report, um, none of them are above the tolerances. Uh, some of them are not even unexpected. Um, but it doesn't mean they weren't safe. I see. Well, what about ice cream? And this is it maybe goes back, you know, John, you already asked, the, you already mentioned, you know, milk, you know, is being safe. But, you know, the Organic Consumers Association really came down hard on Ben and Jerry's and made this claim that their ice cream was containing substantial amounts of glyphosate that, you know, they framed in their discussion as being, you know, a risk. And so what was their claim and, and is it reliable? Yeah, so Kevin, I, I remember that report when it came out a few years ago, and so the OCA actually reported that um, 10 of the 11 flavors that they tested had detectable glyphosate. And uh, the report did list an LOD and an LOQ, but it didn't give any information about what assay was used or whether it was validated or not. And so because of that, it's very difficult to evaluate it from a scientific perspective. So the way to go about it then is to think, what's the likelihood that the glyphosate would even be there? And so in doing that, um, just think about the most simple flavor, vanilla. And so vanilla is one of the flavors that tested positive and uh, it contains milk, egg, water, vanilla bean and vanilla bean extract. We've already talked about milk and egg. It's probably, you know, glyphosate's not there. Um, perhaps water, but you know, the water is filtered. It's probably not there as well. Um, and there's other ingredients that are like binding agents, um, things like guar gum and, and, and others, but those, those are not likely sources for glyphosate. And the one that I didn't mention yet is sugar. So we talked about sugar beets. And so, you know, in addition to sugar cane, sugar beets is a source of sugar and they can be herbicide tolerant. So yeah, they're probably sprayed with glyphosate, but there's been studies that have been done and performed on uh, looking for glyphosate specifically during the processing of the sugar. And and they don't find any in the end product. So the bottom line is, is I really don't know where it'd be coming from. Um, I mean, I can't conclusively say that it's not there, but the result is very questionable for sure. Very good. I, I guess the other place that we see it always reported is honey. And 
honey, you know, sometimes has a little bit of a halo around it um, in these discussions because it's related to bees and bees having an important role as pollinators. And I guess it is conceivable that you could detect it in honey because bees are out foraging and doing their things. And if they're foraging near a field where there was residual spray, maybe moving over, then maybe it could be there. But if there was residual spray, the flowers probably would not be flowering on the weeds that they're foraging on or on the plants they're foraging on because they would be killed by herbicide. So which of these tests, there's been a number of them. Are there any of the honey ones that were done correctly using the correct instrumentation or are these also kind of questionable? So Kevin, the, um, one of the problems with the honey studies is that, um, even if you were to spray flowers with glyphosate um, or spray around them, um, it only is going to be a nectar and pollen for a very short time. Um, and and so not only is there the issue of, you know, what would be the amount, but it has to do with what's the window of time. And so when you go to evaluate some of these honey studies, um, they're never very controlled for the most part. They tend to be where, you know, somebody who was, you know, had some hives um, or selling honey, they, they measured it, um, but they don't necessarily even know what flowers the, the bees uh, were, were, were actually using. Um, I, I think I've heard that bees will go up to five miles um, away, so you don't always know exactly what the, the pollen source, nectar source in that honey. So they become difficult to evaluate. But again, some of them use the ELISA. Um, I would imagine in something with that amount of sugar in it, um, that could be very difficult for the ELISA. Um, there was an FDA test where they did use um, LCMS. Um, but to really understand it, you really almost need to do a study where you have a confined area that the bees are in and you know exactly what the source of, what the flower source is. Uh, when it when glyphosate was sprayed, how much got actually onto the plants, um, and, and and so I think we that's an area that probably we do need to see some more research in. Well, if there are claims that this is showing up in food in the grocery cart, it inevitably would be reflected in the urine, and you say that you can use urine as a reliable method. So, can you can I kind of connect the dots here? Is urine really a super detectable method? So if it was actually showing up in grocery stores, you would actually be able to survey for it and identify it in our excretions. Um, yeah, so Kevin, that, that, that's, that's completely correct. So, so urine is a good proxy to estimate um, actual exposure, exposure. And the reason for that is um, when you try to do it from the other way, you, you'd have to consider all dietary sources of exposure um, what foods could potentially have glyphosate on it, how much of that you're consuming, um, and how much water you're ingesting that could potentially contain glyphosate, et cetera. So you'd have to consider all of those factors. But the fact that you can uh, measure it in the urine, you can then back calculate and actually determine your total dietary exposure. And the reason for that is because glyphosate is not metabolized. So you make certain assumptions. One, um, you assume the amount of that's absorbed is around 20%. You have to consider urine output on a daily basis, and you also have to consider body weight. And based on those assumptions and the value that's detected in the urine, you can then back calculate to get the amount ingested. Therefore, you're bypassing the need to have to consider the food that was eaten and, and glyphosate from all different dietary sources. 
Um, and in fact, if you look at table six in the paper, um, we kind of summarize all the urine surveys that were done. And, and those were done on different subjects from our different people from around different places around the world, um, different age groups, et cetera. And they use different tests, the ELISA, the mass spec, et cetera. We've talked about all of that. And when you look at that data, um, the bottom line is, is the highest reported value, um, and I think it was using the ELISA, is still less than 3% of the ADI. So it's a good proxy for exposure, and it's also uh, reaffirms that the amount that you're adjusting is still well below um, any amount of concern. And uh, maybe along the same line, does it also take into consideration environmental exposure? So maybe just not things you're eating, but maybe if you're using Roundup around the house or if you're a farmer who sprays, can it also, uh, could, th could that either obfuscate your urinary results or give you uh, hints of your exposure that way? You know, when, when the highest ever recorded urine value was from a study where it was looking at um, farmers that were spraying, and, and definitely you could see urine um, glyphosate levels that increase uh, following spraying. In fact, one of the pieces of advice that came from that paper was that if you just wore rubber gloves, um, you can greatly reduce how much you're exposed to. So, so it really is a sum total of all the glyphosate that gets into your body. Um, and, and that's why we consider it to be a fairly reliable value. Um, I'll just point out one paper we didn't include in the, in this, in that table was because it only included one farmer. And that was a study out of Poland where a farmer, uh, the headline of the article basically is that he has the highest, uh, recorded value for glyphosate in urine. And they have a picture of him holding a sample. Like he's very proud to have this honor, um, <laughs> And, and, and yet the reality is we did the calculation for that one farmer and that farmer was in the ballpark of like 3%, if I remember correctly. Um, so people can really look at these numbers and get carried away. And if you just do the simple math, um, it really tells you a lot. Um, what about these tests where they say online you could send in your hair sample or your uh, urine and get an idea of your exposure? Are any of those reliable or have any merit? Well, I think some of the ones that are um, advertising uh, now are using LC MSMS techniques. So I would expect that they would be a lot more reliable than uh, ones trying to use the ELISA. Um, but as I said earlier, any technique, any methodology can be misused. Um, and so when when you see these reports, what's really nice is to have the information on what method was used, how it was used, was it validated, what's the LOD, what's the LOQ. You know, those are the things that you need to evaluate whether you can trust the numbers. So what about the question of hair samples? People have made this claim that it's detectable in the hair and, and that that could be used as a way to uh, test your family's exposure. Is that realistic? Uh, I would think the quantities would be very low in here and be able to detect that. I don't uh, think there's a realistic um, expectation to be able to get a reliable number. Yeah, it would seem like that if it wasn't being metabolized. Probably just environmental exposure, if any, you know. But, um, John, maybe I can ask you this kind of sum up everything. What's the big takeaway for an audience like this as they communicate to the public regarding glyphosate detection and exposure? Yeah, I think that the um, 
the conclusions are um, you can kind of step through the sections of the paper and there are actually different conclusions. But for the most part, it's first of all that you need highly accurate, validated assays um, so that you can draw any conclusions based on any numbers that you see. Um, <clears throat> without without a highly accurate assay, um, these numbers really are not of a lot of value. Um, market surveys that have been conducted um, basically indicate that values are uh, less than the tolerances as, as they would expect it to be. Um, and what that really tells us is, is that for the most part, farmers are following the label. Um, I think it's also important to just understand that mere detection of something is not necessarily informative of health. And so that number has to be put into context with other things. And, and so when you evaluate exposure by dietary modeling or by using urine values, both of those basically conclude that glyphosate exposure is well below the amounts that are considered to be safe um, in, in diets. Oh, very good. So if someone wanted more information, where is the best place online to find reliable information about this? Um, well, obviously, the paper is available in comprehensive reviews in food science and food safety. Um, and I guess you're going to post a link to that. Um, another thing you might want to be aware of is, is that Bayer has a practice of um, being very transparent about our data. Um, and the data for uh, GM crops is on the Bayer website. Um, and then for, um, for glyphosate. If you go to glyphosate.eu, um, there, there you can find um, detailed information about glyphosate studies. Okay, well, thank you very much for all of this clarification. It is such an important topic, and it's so important for us as communicators to understand the best information and, and what's out there. So, uh, Dr. John Vassini, Dr. Pam Jensen, Dr. John Swarthout, Bruce Young, thank you very much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you. And as always, thank you very much for you, the listener, for joining me on the Talking Biotech Podcast. This issue is a critical one, and be sure to visit that paper and understand what it means. Ask questions, um, and maybe in the future we can do a webinar with this group, something like that. It's really important for you to be able to dispel the myths and the disinformation that's going on around this critical agricultural component. Thank you very much for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.